This is the good, the Baz, and the ugly. I'm the Baz. Well, that no, I'm Baz. That sounds weird if I were going around calling myself the Baz. Anyway, uh, look, this podcast is filled with uncensored interviews with experts in particular fields or real-life stories from people who have inspiring personal tales to tell. It covers various topics and life stories that I've really dug, you know what I mean? And I think you'll dig them too. Just so you know, this podcast is for grown-ups. It may contain adult themes, sexual references, and strong language. Fuck yeah! No, I just wanted to. Sheet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. Hold it now, wait, hold it. I know you're gonna dig this. I think the best thing for me to do is to introduce him. What the... What's his name? Baz Ashwami. It's not Baz Ashwami. It's Baz Ashmawi. Yeah, you're very welcome to the third episode of The Good, The Bad. Wait, it's not third, is it? Fourth. fourth. Damn. No, we won't do a retake. We'll just go with it. It's the fourth episode of The Good, The Baz and The Ugly. Man, man, what a week. Seriously. Um, it's been crazy. Uh, like, look, for those listeners uh, who are abroad, because we have listeners abroad, don't we, John John? Of course you do. That, ooh, very good. John John's well into it. I'm international, bitch. What do, what can I say? We have listeners, like John John said, in the UK. We have some in Australia, France, uh, the States. Man, we got some listeners in Egypt. Probably relatives of mine, if I'm quite honest. My aunt. Salam alaikum, Tantavaf, by the way. Um, but for those who are living abroad, or I don't know, maybe you're in the future. Maybe you're listening back to this episode. Ooh, Baz to the future. Oh, that's good. Baz to the future. Um, if my calculations are correct, when this baby hits 88 episodes, uh, you know, you're going to see some serious shit, Marty. I mean, John John. Do you think we... By the way, John John's just a little voice in a box right now because we've social distanced in here and John John can't be in the office with me. So, are you okay, John John? I am. I'm here in my Yeah. You're just this little voice in a box beneath me. It's very strange. Look, uh, let me set the scene for, for our listeners. For those who don't know, it's the it's Tuesday, the 27th of October, 2020. Of course, it's 20 bloody 20. Will it ever end? But this episode will be as relevant in Timbuktu as it is in 2035. Ireland has just entered the second lockdown, right? Stage five or the Bob Marley stage because it's as high as it gets. No, Clever. nothing. Clever. You're tough. Drum, Crowd. Drum okay, all right. Um, it sucks at the moment, right? I'm very aware. I think we all are. There's a weird kind of atmosphere out there. It's kind of like a... I don't know, just kind of like an anxiety. But for this week, I want to touch on something really important for everyone to listen to. Because it affects so many people. Maybe it's you or... It's a friend or a neighbor or a colleague, or maybe it's just to, I don't know, unravel the tapestry of your society so you can have empathy and understanding for what some people are living through. This episode is on domestic abuse, but it's a positive show because I don't do negative. I can't do negative shit. There has to be a positive spin on it. Sometimes you, you, you just need to hear things in black and white. The big sets. But you know what I mean? You need to hear things out loud because you see, I wanted to focus on in particular coercive control because it affects the minds of people so much. Like a lot of people don't even realize it's been done to them, you know? Or maybe you don't realize you're doing it to someone else and it's fucking unacceptable. 
Jess Hill is an Australian investigative journalist. She's been writing and researching about domestic abuse since way back in 2014. Before that, she was a producer for ABC Radio, a Middle East correspondent for the Global Mail. She was listed in Foreign Policy's top 100 women to follow on Twitter, and you should. And also as one of the 30 most influential people under 30 by Cosmopolitan magazine. Her reporting has won two Walkie Awards, an Amnesty International and three Our Watch Awards. Her Stella Award winning, I repeat, her Stella Award winning See What You Made Me Do is an absolute game changer in this area of coercive control. And she very, very kindly took the time to chat to me. Hey Jess, you're an Aussie. <laughs> I am. Are you an yes. ocker? Are you you out in the sticks am, somewhere? Am I an ocker? Yeah. Well, when I was actually recording the audiobook, the guy who was producing me kept on having to say, say Australia, not Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say not always, but sometimes. I have, yeah, modes. I, 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 the first thing that struck me was, why did you write this book? Yeah, it's a good question. I asked that question of myself many times during the four years that I was writing it. And I think that essentially, I mean, I came to this subject like almost accidentally. It was the killing of a young boy called Luke Batty um, by his father at a public cricket pitch. And something happened that year to our country where we just suddenly went from not really wanting to hear these stories and not respecting the people who'd lived through it to suddenly being so hungry to understand why this was still happening, that it, it was suddenly making headline news and front page news. And then Rosie Betty became Australian of the Year in 2015. And she worked that like nobody else ever had before. She did hundreds of appearances. And that momentum was part of what got me reporting on this issue. It's funny you say that because even doing this subject matter in the series of the podcast that I'm doing, I was like, is this too dark? Is this too, is this wrong? But there's something inherent at the moment that I've just seen it appear quite a lot where, you know, people are talking about domestic violence and domestic abuse and how, how it's just gone through the roof since lockdown. Mm. Uh, like, mm. I, I don't know the details of why, but could you tell me why you think it's, it's, it's kind of um, growing now more than ever? Yeah, I mean, well, historically, we know that when you have a recession, you have increased rates of domestic abuse. When you have holiday seasons, like Christmas, you have increased rates of domestic abuse, partly because you have all the family together at one time. So if you have a situation, certainly we've had this in Australia and in certain times over in the UK and Ireland, where you are mostly in, together in the house um, or there is l less opportunity for you to go out, and the economy is shrinking and people are losing jobs, that they are like that's a pressure cooker situation for domestic abuse. It's the question that we're asking now is are we seeing aggressive partners become aggressive for the first time during this, or is it exacerbating existing dynamics? And there's gonna have to be a lot of study on this later to find out what what's really happening there. But yeah, I mean, this is a this is a situation that is incredibly challenging to everybody. You see people unraveling in all sorts of different ways. You see people going across to QAnon conspiracy theory, sort of, you know, almost like cult-like followings. You see people struggling with um, their own mental health, anxiety. You know, it's not just COVID. It's the threat of climate change. It's what social media does to our brains. It's so many different things, the pressures that we're under. And in the book, I really talk about one of the, I think, you know, the key drivers for abuse, especially in, in male perpetrators, 
is um, unacknowledged and toxic levels of shame. And so when you have something like a, a recession or you have things where where men are feeling challenged, where they're feeling like their status it's is emasculated being reduced, to a certain extent as well. Emasculated. Suppose, right? Yeah. Those kinds of guys who have not only just like toxic, unacknowledged shame, which may stem from childhood, it may just stem from not wanting to ever compromise and being very entitled. When you pair that with entitlement, you get a very, very dangerous situation where these where these guys really feel like they shouldn't have to feel any type of shame. They shouldn't have to feel weakness. They should never feel vulnerability. And so they'll project that shame onto their partner. And in order to feel more powerful, they'll sort of exert this humiliated fury um, which can either be actual aggression and violence or it can be control. This is what I wanted um, to ask you. degradation. So say the difference between domestic violence and domestic abuse. How, how, would, you, how would you explain that to people? Well, essentially, it's just a matter of terms. Like, I mean, you could, domestic violence can mean domestic abuse. Why I use the term domestic abuse is largely actually um, following what's happened in the UK and across Ireland, where the terminology has been changed because it's not just physical violence or sexual violence. And you know, we don't call it child violence because we have neglect and molestation and other forms of non-physical violence included in that term. And with domestic abuse, you have so many non-physical elements like control, surveillance, gaslighting, isolation, that when you use the term violence, we still think of incidents instead of courses of behaviour. And I, I think that the big project on that's really been on for the last 15 years plus has been to take, to replace that incident-based lens where we think about a hit or a rape or whatever it is and replace it with what is an accumulation of behaviour. And that accumulation of behaviour is actually what is incredibly impactful on victims, both adults and kids, um, whereas the one-off incident may just be the the big brush fire um, that gets people's attention, but in and of itself, that is not all that domestic violence. Tell is me this, because what what so what happens sometimes is when you, I think when someone is trapped in 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 their own universe, right, and and they can't see the wood for the trees a little bit. What are the signs? Like, what are the signs that that you're being mistreated mentally? I because I, physically is so it's so it's so much more obvious if 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 your partner mm. is hitting you or someone is hitting you or um, physically hurting you. That's that's a very obvious. You know that that's that's wrong. But because men mentally, you can be um, subjugated in such a way where you're tricked and. Um, confused. So if someone was listening, how would they know if they're in a relationship that they're they're being taken advantage of mentally? It's very difficult. Um, and I'd say most most women, I mean, this is what statistics say, most women in particular who are living with coercive control, which is a particularly controlling type of um, abuse, they don't know. And they don't know until sometimes until the relationship is over or until it's become very dangerous. Now, what what I, I heard a, a psychiatrist here in Australia who I work with it described it so beautifully the other day, which is to say that often victims believe that they are making choices in this in in this environment, and they're saying, "Well, I choose to make sure the house is clean before he gets home, or I choose to really, you know, um, clean all the jars in the cupboard because I like it that way." But the choices they're making are because there are consequences if they don't do that. So they think that they're choosing because because their, their partner's not saying you have to do this. But what happens is they make it very clear that if you don't, 
there will be consequences. So the consequences mightn't be physical. The consequences are verbal abuse, is it? Degrading. Is... Yeah, it could be just you're, you're degraded. It could be um, you're stonewalled, like they don't talk to you for two days. Um, it could be any number of punishments. But it's this is why we call it coercive control and not just control. So much of it is about coercion and setting up this environment of confusion and contradiction and threat. How how do they disguise that? Like if you're in a family environment, say you're in a family mm. environment, how do they disguise stonewalling you in front of your children? Or do they? In a lot of cases, you know, the, the kids are aware that you don't ask daddy questions, you know, or if he's stonewalling, will you just tiptoe around him? You know, I mean, that's so in a lot of cases, the kids are as sort of involved in that coercive control environment as the as the mother is. Um, in other cases, it may be much more subtle undermining. Which is sad because kids only know what they know, right? That's the thing. Oh, it's absolutely devastating. You know, and you hear like I spoke to a number of kids for the for the book. I really wanted their voices to be heard as primary, not just secondary victims or witnesses. And, you know, one one little kid who's eight years old, Finley, he was a really keen gamer and he said he used to read his dad's face like an algorithm and he'd be able to see just the subtle changes in his face that would tell him how his dad would behave that night. And what, what you're really hearing in that is the kind of hypervigilance that soldiers have where they start to, if they're like on a foreign assignment and they're seeing a slight change in the way people are sort of milling around and keeping very vigilant to like when is something going to happen, when is something going to change that is going to be a threat. That's what kids are doing and brain scans have shown that actually children who grow up in these environments have the same sort of brain patterns as returned servicemen um, and it's about that hypervigilance, constantly alert to threat and constantly managing that and, and developmentally. So they are organising their development around the constant presence of threat and betrayal, you know, by, by their parents. But to get back to what you were saying about yeah. what are the signs, yeah. you know. So you mentioned that, stonewalling and then. Yeah, so, I mean, really the classic sort of list of behaviours from a perpetrator of coercive control, isolation, monopolising the victim's perception, so either uh, convincing them that it's either their fault or that they're a really broken person, the perpetrator's a broken man, and just needs the loyalty and love of their partner to, to fix them. You know, it's like, if you're the strong one, you can fix me. So, but what they do in monopolizing that perception is say, like, put all of the focus on the victim and the victim's wondering, what can I do to fix this? Why is he doing this to me? What or What is it about me that draws this, et cetera, et cetera? So they stop looking at what he's doing and they also start to feel levels of shame and guilt. Then you've got gaslighting, um, you've got Explain um, threats, Because I know we, we hear these terms all the time, but I, I, sometimes I think people don't have a clue what they are, you know? So gaslighting can be as, as like, overt as um, I just pushed you over. You, you, you come, you, you know, pick yourself up and go, why did you do this? And I say, what do you mean? I didn't do anything. So it can be that overt or it can be much more subtle and like a, a slow attack on your sanity, which is something like, I tell you on our first date that I love Thai food more than any other food. So the next time we get together, you're like, let's go out to Thai. And I'm like, I hate Thai food. I don't want to go to Thai. So suddenly you're like, hang on a minute. I'm sure they said that. But so it's that over and over and over and over to the point where you're starting to doubt your sanity. And then they start to say things like, 
why do you always get this wrong? You know, what's wrong with you? Can't you remember simple things? And then you start to think, maybe I'm going crazy. You know, so this is what's, what starts to make so many victims feel like they're going mad and then they feel even more trapped. Like if I didn't have this person that I'm with to like make decisions for me or to watch out for me, how would I survive on my own? Like I'm crazy. So there's that threats and degradation you know, threats to harm pets is a very big one used a lot or actual harm of pets. A basic entrapment, which means that even though they may not be actually physically trapped in the house, there becomes a very clear sense that if they were to leave, they would, someone they love may be harmed, they may be harmed, or that there is no way that you can get out of this, that there's, that you are utterly trapped in this situation. And that's and they may do that especially through financial abuse. So withholding money or controlling bank accounts is a really big one. So that you know the victim gets an allowance but doesn't have enough money to actually leave. Surveillance like cameras inside the house, GPS trackers in the car, surveillance on the phone. You know all of this stuff is very easy to access. You can get this stuff online very cheaply. You don't have to be tech savvy. Um, and in at least in Australia, that sort of surveillance is not uncommon. Yeah, it's it's so shocking. I, I know we're we're talking we're talking about women. What do you know? What the percentages are? Do you know? Do you know what they are for women who are in um, kind of coercive situations like that? Yeah. So, do you mean like versus male, like male victims, or just uh, yeah, out of the so general population? Like how many how many women are, are dealing? Oh, with how that? many? Yeah. It's about generally across Western countries. It's it hovers around one in four. One in um, four. Yeah. One in four. Yeah. Fuck in some me. time in their lifetime. And is there wow, I'm shocked at that. Like mm. is there a personality? Like is there is it a certain I'm not blame I'm no way blame, yeah, yeah. but there's people have different types of personality. Is there a personality type that is more susceptible to being to kind of falling into that kind of category? Now what I see time and time again is you have these women who are really selfless, who are very caring, and who actually put themselves in the role of the carer for this man who is kind of unhinged and has all these problems that they're trying to fix. And they're like, one more show of devotion, one more show of loyalty, and he'll finally trust me. He'll finally, you know, not think I'm cheating on him or not need to track my every movement. And so actually that selflessness, which is, you know, when you when you meet someone who's like selfless, like a nurse or whatever, you, we think that that's a great quality and it is a beautiful quality. But that feeling like I will just do whatever is necessary to help you, that's that's a really common victim trait. And it's not because that's a it's not a weakness. You know, it's actually these women are are often incredibly strong. Do you know what the stats for men are? Do you, do you like it's if it's one in four for women? Do you know Do you know what the stats for men might be? It depends on how you measure it. So I'm not, it's, again, data is so um, difficult in this area. Um, but so if, you've, if you're looking at sort of incidents of whether they've experienced incidents of physical violence, I think it's like one in seven in Australia, but I'm not, ex I can't exactly remember. Tell me this, who is Albert Betterman? Yes, well, he's very interesting in this whole um, area of study in that he's got nothing to do with domestic abuse at all. He was a US Air Force sociologist and 
in the 1950s, um, after the um, Korean War ended, he started studying returned American prisoners of war because they had done, they had sort of behaved in a way that was completely unprecedented when they were in the um, the camps being run by the Chinese communists. And that is that they had informed on fellow prisoners, they'd confessed to made-up atrocities, they had, you know, basically decried capitalism and made broadcasts um, extolling the virtues of communism. Um, some had even defected to communist China. So the American media and even members, you know, up, up to the head of the CIA, were all convinced that they'd been brainwashed and that the Soviets and the communist Chinese had come up with some fancy brainwashing machine to make these soldiers do what no other soldiers in, you know, in wars had ever done. And, well, Biedermann basically decided that this all sounded like rubbish, that there was no fancy brainwashing machine and why doesn't someone go and talk to these guys and find out what had happened and what he got through their testimonies was that they had been subjected to routines of what he called coercion and control. And he highlighted eight techniques that were used against them, starting with isolation, with monopolizing their perception, inducing debility and exhaustion, um, degrading them, threatening them, alternating punishments with rewards. So, you know, setting up this trust relationship first when they'd be taken prisoner the communists would sort of like slap them on the back, tell them they are friends of the workers of America, give them cigarettes. So the soldiers would go into these camps sort of feeling like maybe we're going to be okay. You know, maybe these people are not going to hurt us. They just want us off the battlefield. And then this process of coercive control would begin. So Biedermann's actually the first person to ever actually anatomize what coercive control is. Now, it's something that has been used in interrogations, in cults, for like centuries, you know, going back time immemorial, because it seems like actually as humans, we instinctively know how to undermine another person's autonomy and gain a type of control over them. And so what we've, what we found, you know, after Biederman gave all these testimonies to Congress and saying that in that list of behaviors, physical violence was not present and it was not necessary. And in fact, where captors were physically violent, the soldiers would actually sort of snap out of the kind of fog they were in. It was actually, it was not useful. Physical violence only needed to be believable and threatened. Because the mental, so, the, the mental abuse, because it's something that is, like we, we mentioned earlier, it's something you don't see, but it's something that's probably easily as damaging, right? It's easily as damaging yeah. as being struck or being hit, you know? It's, yeah, it's, well, and I think the, the way to think about that is that you know, in these situations, physical violence is just a part of that system of abuse. It's not the abuse. It's a part of a way of humiliating and degrading the person. Um, it's a part of a way of making sure they know who's boss, you know, training them into compliance, which was another big part of what Bitterman identified as part of coercive control. So the less overtly physical violence someone is, as you said earlier, the less likely it is that a victim will cotton on to what's going on, whereas a, a, a strike, sexual violence, that may be just enough to snap them out of it and say, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm in threat here. Of course, a lot of the time victims are rationalising what's happening to them, often to protect their partner or protect the marriage. So they're like, he's only doing this because he's stressed, he's doing this because he's unwell but I'm really trying to help him. All these levels of rationalisation, they build like sediment between the truth and what you come to believe. 
And so it can take victims a really long time or just, just time away from this abusive person to dig below all those that sedimentary level of rationalisation to actually see what was happening to them. Yeah. Is it is it something that you can... Because a lot of the talk is about the victim, the victim, the victim. And I, I just kind of mm. feel sorry for the victim because it, there's so much focus on them while... Well, really, is there enough focus on the perpetrator? Do you know, like, like, is mm. there signs? Is there, is it a certain personality type? Is it, you know, um, like, can you? Is it something that just appears one day, or is it always in them? You know, I like, I totally agree, and that's why we called it "See What You Made Me Do" and put the words of the perpetrator on the cover um, because I wanted people to think about the perpetrator from the very first moment they opened the book. We we foreground victim survivors because they offer themselves to be studied. You know, as um, the Harvard psychiatrist Judith Herman pointed out, perpetrators don't want to be studied. Um, and so <laughs> yeah, we don't yeah. have a lot of testimony from them. And even if they do, you know, often you're not sure with what, if what they're saying is actually insightful. Do they fucking um, know what they're doing? Do they, do they, are they that mad that they don't realise what they're doing? Or do they not care? Or are they sociopaths? Or like? Well, there has been. So there have been um, a number of attempts to try to sort of Get a, a get an understanding of the, are there different types of abusers? So they call this typologies, and uh, there's we have to always take this a bit with a grain of salt because you know people are complex and they don't ne- neatly fit into categories. But I think it helps just to get a sense of like what basic patterns we see. And some people will go between one and the other um, depending on what relationship they're in, etc. But perhaps some. One of, the, one of the most populist sort of studies that really caught on in the early 90s was done by uh, Drs. Jacobson and Gottman. And Dr. Gottman's a sort of very famous relationship research expert. Um, and they had this thing called the Love Lab. And they basically invited these couples into the Love Lab to fight. And they found 63 couples who had histories of coercive control and so what they did, they hooked them up with all these machines, you know, um, measuring sweat, heart rate. They were coding whatever they said. It was very elaborate. And what they found is that 20% of these men who went into the lab would strike like immediately, like a, like, like a snake, very fast, very sadistic, very aggressive. Um, but as they were doing that on the heart rate monitor, their heart rates went down, not up. So they actually became more calm the more aggressive they got. And what they sort of ascertained from that is that that aggression and that control was their comfort spot. And when they started to interview and look at their sort of life histories and the relationship histories, these, what they called, and I'm not really, I'm not happy with terms like this, but they called them cobras. What they saw is that these guys actually did know what they were doing. They were pathological about it. Um, they, They pretty much repeated the same pattern in every relationship. They weren't that intimately attached to their partner, but they were very attached to having someone they could control. And so they would use pretty much the same patterns in every relationship. They were very dangerous at the moment they were going to be exposed or left, but they were less likely to stalk and sort of, you know, really, you know, be a thorn in that person's side for the rest of their life. The other 80% or so um were a group of men that they called pit bulls. Anyway, um, the reason they called them that was because the anger was slow to build. Their heart rates, of course, went through the roof as they became more aggressive, as you'd expect would be a normal response. But they would just go and go and go their partners and not let go. It was just like watching a pit bull literally just lock jaw onto its victim. 
And what they found is that pit bulls were much more likely to stalk and even kill their partner and, you know, but they'd be the kind of guys that would murder suicide because they'd be the guys who were absolutely needed their partner. They were had terrified um, of abandonment, absolutely terrified of being disrespected and cheated on. Um, and when their partners would leave um, for, for the guys that would, would go through and do this sort of thing, um, they'd feel like there was nothing left to live for. Whereas a cobra would just sort of reinvent himself. Some people, because I was talking to a friend of mine about this, some people are good in conflict, aren't they? They're happy mm-hmm. in conflict. You know, this is an arena or a space that they're they're happy in. While someone else, you know, doesn't even like confrontation, doesn't like complaining about the meal they get, let alone mm. get into serious confrontation. It, mm. Do you think as well that there's a level of, if you've come from a history of, uh, of uh, say, sustaining a lot of shit, you know, children. Mm. Like, because I hear people going, well, why don't they just leave? Like, why don't they just go? And I just always think, it's such a stupid thing to say because (laughs) you're obviously not putting yourself in any way in this person's shoes. And Mm. just from people that I've met over the years, just some people that their level of, I'll I'll take this much shit off someone is much more different. Like you, like if your husband came in now and started giving out to you, you might just freak out while, your level of taking shit might be completely different to mine. Maybe I would sustain yeah. a hell of a lot more. So it, how, mm. do, how do you even begin to map out the type of person or, or, or how to identify it? I don't know. If, in my mind, yeah. I think that, you know, what's also important to um, think about is the accumulation effect. So if someone were to, like if your partner was just to go from being completely normal to like just throwing shit at you, you'd be like, piss off. <laughs> um, but if you if they were to subtly undermine your self-esteem, subtly undermine your sanity, and you didn't even notice it happening, but you're like a frog in boiling pot, then maybe by the time they have a go at you, you think, I deserve that. You know what I mean? This is what, this is what coercive control is, is it is creating an environment in which the worst degradation somehow makes sense. Um, even if parts, you know, victims may be saying, I don't deserve this, what he's doing is wrong, They'll often they'll rationalise it like, but I can't lose the marriage or the children need their father or there's all sorts of ways they'll rationalise what's happening. One woman I spoke to, it was, it was not until her partner shook their baby so violently that she was worried that it, it would hemorrhage that she left and she did leave and very bravely, you know, she pressed charges It was, um, and it was a huge ordeal for her. She had to go through family court. But she said to me, what I realised later is that I had thought of myself as expendable. The marriage and my baby having a father was more important than me being alive. Like I kind of had made peace with the idea that he might kill me. And this is a person who's like a trauma nurse She's so intelligent and so strong and now would not put up with one ounce of shit, you know, <laughs> like I, I, she's one of the strongest and most impressive women I've ever met. Do you know what's inspiring about that is someone who's evolved, you know, because mm. I, think, I think people get into, into, into a space where they don't see any hope whatsoever, you know, they just think mm. this is it, I, you know, this is the horse I backed. And I'm fucked now. Yeah. You know, I'm just trapped. Yeah, I've in invested this. so much in it. And yeah. people say, I've heard, I've heard victims say, 
it's sort of like the, the stock market. Like you see the share market crash, you've, you've invested $10,000. So you're like, I'm just going to wait and see if it goes back up again. Because if I back out now, I lose everything. Because just as you say that, do they change? Can they change? Will they change? Well, because I, I suppose like, this is what people tell themselves oh, constantly. Mm. Oh, it'll get better, and you know they make excuses and they go, "It'll get better." And maybe if we talk it through, and you know they'll they'll and they could go through a, a stage of being better for a while and then slip back into mm. it as long as soon as pressure comes. But can they change in general? Um, I think that there are definitely are men who've changed. I think that what what some victims get the wrong idea about is that they will be able to change their partners. The partners have to change themselves. You know, and the work that needs to go into that is gigantic, is confronting entitlement, perhaps confronting, you know, deep unacknowledged shame, learning how to trust and be vulnerable in intimacy. I mean, there is so much undoing of habituation. When you're talking about deep shame, uh, just just to kind of focus on that for a minute, what kind of yeah. thing are you talk, talking about? You're talking about the, the, their childhood and maybe abuse and that kind of thing, is it? Yeah, and it's not even necessarily abuse. Um, I want to just quickly read you this this one paragraph that um, was from a book that, that just absolutely made sense of this for me. Um, and it basically, it's this book, The Batterer, A Psychological Profile, and um, Donald Dutton, who is a psychologist, and his co-author, Susan Gallant, they, they identified two parental types that would most commonly lead boys to becoming abusive as men, and that was a cold, rejecting mother or more likely a shaming father. So not necessarily violence, um, but so for boys in particular, this type of upbringing would set this future trajectory. And they say there is a pool of shame in such an individual that can find no expression. That is, until an intimate relationship occurs and with it the emotional vulnerability that menaces his equilibrium, the mask he has so carefully crafted over the years. Perhaps it's the mask of a tough guy or a cool guy or a gentleman. Whatever identity he had created is irrelevant. Now a woman threatens to go backstage and see him and his shame without the makeup. Then, to his own surprise, the rage starts. He feels it like an irritation and sometimes like a tidal wave. He's shocked and surprised. He may apologize and feel shame immediately after, but he can't sustain that emotion. It's too painful, too reminiscent of hurts long buried. So he blames it on her. And if it happens repeatedly with more than one woman, he goes from blaming her to blaming them, and his personal shortcomings become rationalised by an evolving misogyny. At this point, the man is programmed for intimate violence. No woman on earth can save him, although some will try. Jesus, as a man listening to that, I'm like, fucking hell. Like, it's a lot to carry. Like, but Jesus, that's just... Makes sense, though, doesn't it, Jess? Like, it just... Yeah, it does. You know, there's a family therapist who talks about the fact that, you know, when you... When you raise boys to believe that you absolutely cannot be vulnerable, that you cannot do anything girly, that you cannot that that to do so is absolutely shameful. And we're not just talking about crying, like we're talking about just having softness, yeah. having tenderness. You know, when you do that, you basically instill in all boys a level of shame because nobody can ever go through life not being vulnerable, not being soft. They are parts of us. We're tender. We're born tender. We want love. So what Terence Real sort of says is that we're basically dealing with, you know, a population of men who all have this this conflict and this deep sense of shame that they weren't able to be the men they were supposed to be because actually it's ridiculous, the expectation. But, but I think 
it's the only good thing I feel, Jess, is that this awakening to, to toxic masculinity and things like that, like it's 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 in our vocabulary now that it was never there before. Mm. And it feels good to say, fuck you, I'll do what I like. I'll wear, from, <laughs> whether it's I'll wear pink or if I want to, if I feel <laughs> sad, I'll cry or I'll do whatever I want. You know, it feels mm. like that was never there before. Tell me this, I, I wanted to ask about Rob and uh, Deb. They're a great couple. I was so fascinating sitting with them. Um, I went and visited them. I was actually with my husband at the time um, because I was, I mean, I was a journalist going to interview them, but I thought, here's a husband and wife who have been through domestic violence. Um, they're about 10 years out of it. She is a psychologist. He now counsels men who are sort of doing these behaviours. I thought, I don't want to be there with my microphone going, open up, you know, tell me about your worst shame. But why don't we just have two married couples sitting at a table chatting about marriage and see what comes out? And it was so amazing. You know, here's a guy, Rob had been through years of very intense therapy where literally, I mean, he got to this point where he'd been very controlling for a long time, but he didn't even really know it. Um, And he became suicidal and he's he's on Xanax, he's, you know, and he went to see a counsellor and he started describing what he's like and, you know, his home life. And the counsellor brought out this piece of paper and on it was printed this cycle of violence, which took, which basically illustrates what domestic violence looks like and all the behaviours. And he said, that's you, that's what you do to your wife and I think you should go home and talk to her about that. <laughs> and Rob was just like, um, okay, and went home, sat on it for a while and then did actually tell Deb you know, and and it was like the scales fell off her eyes and his, and suddenly she realised what had been done to her. She's a psychologist. She hadn't picked up what was happening, and she had to Google. She probably treated people who were experiencing domestic abuse and did not pick up that that's what she was experiencing. Um, and so she Googled emotional abuse and suddenly was like, oh, my God, this is just like my life on a screen. So Rob, like, you know, begged her to stay, all the rest of it. She was really um, in a very traumatised response Um, and he dedicated himself to counselling, very, very intense counselling for years. But even as he was doing that, he was sort of trying to manipulate her like, oh, you know, I really want to make this work. If you just stop doing that job and come back and look after the kids, then we'll be able to make it work, you know, just constantly trying to manipulate her. But she was live to it and she's like, I'm not buying into that. And finally, it came to this point where he was able to just let it go. He says that he remembers just crying in his bedroom for like hours. It was like this volcano erupting. And suddenly he was like, I don't need her to stay with me. I don't need anything. I just need to go through this process and stop doing what I'm doing to my kids, even to my friends, being controlling, etc. And and what he realized is like, this is a type of freedom that I need for me, not because I need my marriage. And um, and it took them a really long time to come back to a state where they could love each other again. And, you know, it was very touch and go. But I think what Rob says, you know, at the end of all that and what he tries to say to guys, it's like, do it. You don't need to do it for your partner. You don't even need to do it for your kids, but do it for yourself so you can wake up and be free. And this is what I keep saying sort of throughout the book because it's like as feminists have been trying to say for a long time in different ways, not always quite so lovingly, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, feminism is for men. 
Like we're, we're trying to explain to you what patriarchy does to women and men and what it does is it limits and threatens all of us. And I think that the sort of process that Rob went through was to say like, I can live a life where intimacy is possible, where closeness is possible, where I can trust other men to be friends and not just competition. Mm. Yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. It's amazing just to hear that a man would come forward and, and just want to fix himself because the stereotype you think of in your head is that you're doomed. Like a guy like that is never going to change. They're just too crippled by mm. their, own, their own demons to, to ever mend. If you're a woman in in this kind of situation and you're brittle and raw and mm. alone, what do you do? Like, what's your first step? Do you do you go for couples counselling or do you go for counselling mm. for yourself? Do you do you just fucking leave? Like, what do you do? <laughs> well, I guess women will handle it in all different ways. I always advise anyone who's who feels like, oh my god. This is what I'm experiencing. I am experiencing coercive control or I'm being abused and I'm just starting to realise that or I've realised it for years and I've just never known what to do is the first thing you need to do is develop a safety plan. And um, there's usually helplines you can call. It would be great if you guys could list the Irish helplines um, where you can just get a sense of like how how is it safest for me to leave? And they'll go through things like they'll they'll assess what kind of threat you're under. So they'll ask hard questions like, have you been choked? Um, are you? Do you feel like you're being surveilled? You know, just to get a sense of what kind of threat are you living with. And then they'll talk about what sort of things do you need if you are going to leave. Um, you know, birth certificates, all the things that like things that you're going to need, identification papers. Um, a lot of women leave with like a few dollars in their back pocket. You know, um, they may not have had any access to money, and in in Ireland and certainly in Australia, fortunately, if you don't have somewhere to stay um, that you feel is safe. They do have refuges. Um, and I can't speak for Irish refugees in specific, but what I know of Australian um, refugees and refugees across the UK is that um, they are often welcoming places. They are places where people will make sense of your experience for you and they'll take care of you. And this is not somewhere that, you know, only um, totally impoverished, um, although obviously there are also, you know, women who are totally impoverished, but it's not like oh, I'm homeless now because I'm in a shelter. These are places of extreme protection. You know, they're places that usually hide their address. Um, they're places that have security systems in order to protect you, you know, and the women who go to these shelters are often in fear for their lives or their children's lives. Um, but I think that what it's really important to do, safety planning and also just thinking about like, okay, if I leave, what options do I have? Like, Am I looking at going to family court? Am I looking at, like, just working through that in your head as best you can? Some women won't have the luxury of planning. You know, some women, something will happen and they'll be like, fuck it, i got to get out of here right now. Because mm. yeah, they think as well, very dangerous situation. sometimes it's fearing for your life, but sometimes it's, I think some people, uh, some women are pushed into a situation for their mental stability. Oh, totally. So that they don't end oh. up, you know, um like killing themselves or something you know like where they're they're yeah. questioning their own sanity on things you know where 100%. they might be fearing their life but they just need to they need to get away from that toxic person you know yeah and i guess what you're trying to do in that case is like it's a shame that in a lot of these cases the women ha and the women and often the children have to leave the house you know um and i guess it's sort of looking into what are the services available often helplines will be like a triage point 
where they'll be able to refer you to someone who can help you safety plan, someone who can help you with financial counselling, someone who can help you with legal advice, um, just to get a sense of what your options are. Now, women who are being very closely surveilled, their options are limited in terms of how many people they can contact, you know, because they may actually have someone tracking their phone. Um, but it's, I guess, trying to put yourself, if you do have the time, put yourself in the strongest position so that you're not, I mean, ideally not leaving with nothing. But for a lot of women, that that's just an option that's not there. And I'm not just talking about women who come from poor backgrounds or, or poor situations. Sometimes the, the wealthiest women on paper can have no access to money whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. I, we, we talk about women, right? And I, and I wanted to because it's, it's just so important and and the stats I'm still getting over that like they're, they're just they're just frightening but but this this happens in men as well all the time it's the same advice it's the same advice for men is yeah, it yeah well and that's you know what i find with with men and I, and devoted a whole chapter in the book both to um female perpetrators but also women who use violence in self defense in relationships but in the in the section really on female perpetrators there certainly can be physical violence. There certainly can be emotional abuse. I hear commonly um, from men who are in these situations, they may be afraid of what will happen to their children if they leave because they fear that the family court will um, give custody to the mother and that the mother will then neglect or or perhaps um, abuse those children. So they stay in the marriage as supervisors. I, I mean, I hear that from women as well, but that's something I hear from men. You know, I think it's what what I hear also from frontline workers who deal with both female and male victims is that the that emotional abuse from from women and sort of manipulative abuse is reasonably common. The amount of male victims they get is much fewer. What the real distinctive difference is the lack of threat of homicide, right? So, I mean, I'm not sure about the stats exactly in Ireland, and it's not unheard of for men to be killed by female perpetrators. But usually when a male is killed by a woman in a relationship, she has been the victim and he has been the perpetrator. Um, now, in cases, you know, obviously it's terrible when it's when it's a case that the female has been the perpetrator and they go on to kill their, their male victim. But I think that generally speaking, not having that threat of homicide changes the equation gigantically, you know. Um, when you, I mean, Almost every woman I speak to who is a, is a victim of serious coercive control is afraid of being killed. And it very much changes the decisions that you make and, um, and the equation that you're looking at when you're thinking about leaving um, or thinking about doing anything um, and not just the fear that she'll be killed but her children will be killed um, or members of her family or her pets. So that's what I think is the really key difference between male and female victims um, but, you know, that said, and I really go through this in quite a lot of detail in the book, when you do have those rarer cases of male victims of coercive control, it's horrific. And especially if the if the female perpetrator is a cop or is someone who has a lot of power, like social power, um, it's incredibly entrapping, you know, um, and it's very hard for men to find places to seek help. Part of the reason is because a lot of male perpetrators will claim to be victims. So it's very hard for services to determine, are you actually a victim or are you a perpetrator claiming to be a victim? Um, so it is very difficult for men in these situations. Um, and it would be it would be great if we could develop services that could really help them, who could, you know, reliably distinguish between perpetrators and victims um, and could offer the help that these guys really badly need. Um, 
which we don't have enough of right now. Tell me this, if, if I have a friend or I'm in a family and I see it's one of my parents or something like that, like what, what's the best support you can give someone who you think is, um, is, is under kind of a coercive control? Mm. It's difficult and it's very, it's vexed because essentially what you're dealing with is someone who is being manipulated almost like they're a member of a cult. That's the kind of impact and effect of coercive control. So for you to go, um, you know, your partner is terrible, I think you should leave them, often the response you'll get is defensiveness and possibly even cutting you off because you're a threat, right, Um, and they won't believe you. What I've found has been effective has been what happens to the victim is they stop seeing the changes in themselves until one day they look in the mirror and they're like, I don't even know if I recognise this person anymore. So as a friend, if you're able to say like, hey, you know, I'm just noticing you're really changing, like you seem really insecure, you're not coming out, it's very hard to just make social engagements with you or you seem very anxious, um, that sort of thing just keeps them alert to what is happening and, and brings them back to like the effects on them, you know, and then if you just stay in their lives, if you can, it's very frustrating for people who love someone who's going through this because it can feel like it's so obvious sometimes what's going on and you just want to be able to say just leave god damn it <laughs> especially if there are children but what how, i think what works is just sticking with them not helping the perpetrator to isolate them by pulling away and just saying to them like you know putting stuff in front of them that might expose what they're going through but saying anytime you're ready to talk or you want to you, you want to change this i'll be there just call me anytime, you know, just having that person who is not judging you, who's not only being friends with you on the, on the proviso that you leave your partner, that is going to make a difference to someone. But, you know, truly when a kid is in the situation and you see children in danger and you see a victim who cannot see the danger, then, you know, sometimes friends are going to have to call the police. That's the awful reality. There are options. I don't because I, I was saying at the start of this. Listen, we're going to have to like bring this up because because <laughs> it's just such a dark subject matter. But there are better options available now than there was in the eighties or even the nineties. Like it's a, it's a mm. different space now, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you talk to um, you know women who are alive now, and some of whom are actually still with their partners um, or husbands. And, you know, like in the 70s, they didn't even have a term to describe what was happening. There was no domestic violence as a term. Until the mid-70s, there were no shelters. There was no legal or criminal justice system response. Um, certainly none of that is perfect now. Um, but, my God, like we've come so far. Obviously, there's still a lot of shame in coming forward as a victim of domestic abuse, but we've had enough people do so in public and shaken the victim stereotype up enough for for people to feel like it's not unspeakable you know like this is speakable now like especially since me too um and the rise of rise of third wave feminism um there's a lot more avenues to speak your truth about this um it's still nowhere near safe enough for women to leave we don't as a society grant women their independence you know, even though we say so, we say, you know, women's equality, this is all in government documents, etc. But when women want to leave, we don't give them the safety they need to do that. We don't protect them in the way that we should. Um, but absolutely, there are so many more options. And I think just so much more awareness. Like, I think Ireland has just recently criminalised coercive control. 
Um, you know, I'm not sure there hasn't been a lot of charges. I'm not sure about the implementation there, but what we're seeing across the UK and Ireland is a new wave of awareness that these patterns of behaviours are incredibly dangerous. They they are almost always present before a homicide um, and that they are just as bad, if not worse, for some people than physical violence. I just thank you so much for chatting to me, really, because there was so much in that and you've explained it so well. The book, uh, I'll give the book a huge shout out because... Um, I think it's a must read. I, I, I ju- you just got me with the name of it. See what you made me do. I think it's such a clever name for a book. I think a lot of people see that straight away and think it'll click with them, you know. Um, Jess, all the best. You're not a knocker, by the way. You're a very nice lady. You're, you're a very nice <laughs> lady. Yeah. And not that, I, you know, ockers and nice ladies can, you know, coexist. I saw your oh, husband just in you. the background and he poked his head through at one stage and I was like, you see, he disappeared. So I don't know. Like, <laughs> You know, um, no, listen, I really appreciate, I really appreciate you chatting through everything with us. Um, I think it's going to be really helpful to people and that there is hope and that that's important to know that, isn't it? Absolutely. And thank you for having me on, Baz. I really, really appreciate it. It's nice. It's my first Irish interview. So yeah, no, um, you're a legend. You're a legend. You're a legend. Well done. (laughs) Keep flying the flag. Thanks a million. Thanks a million. I'll let you say goodbye to the guys there. Thanks, Jess. See you, John, John. See you. Bye. Thanks so much. Thanks a million, Jess. You were brilliant. That's great. (laughs) You don't have to live in fear because the alternative, let me tell you, is not living. I swear to you, there are loads of support services around and you're not the first person or the last person who's going to need them. There is nothing to be embarrassed about at all. Um, whatever country you're in there's there's support services there I promise you that in regards to Ireland you have uh, safeireland.ie you have mensaidireland you have womensaidhse.ie the garda.ie you got to adapt ADAPT uh, which is the domestic abuse services you have sunus um, anyman.ie samaritans just reach out and people will be there to help you I promise you that um, I wish you all the best I hope you all take care of each other and I'll be chatting to you all very soon again. So uh, so that's it for this week. Good luck in the comments.